and welcome to another episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast, a show in which we talk about anything and everything to do with migration, with me, your host, Loxanne Harley. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Onyekachi Wambu, director of the African Foundation for Development, or Afford UK, to talk about his illustrious career spent engaging African diasporas in support of the African continent's development. Onyekachi has had a distinguished career as a print and broadcast journalist, spending time as a senior producer and documentary director at the BBC and PBS. He has also written extensively himself on Africa and the African diaspora, including authoring the books Empire Windrush, 50 Years of Writing About Black Britain, and Under the Tree of Talking, Leadership for Change in Africa. As I mentioned, Onyekachi now heads up Afford UK, a London-headquartered international NGO with a mission to expand and enhance the contributions of Africans in the diaspora to advance Africa's development. Afford is a real pioneer and innovator in the field of diaspora engagement, and their advocacy work has contributed significantly to UK and international recognition of the importance of African diasporas to the continent's development. Having known Onyakachi for a while now, I relish this opportunity to dig into his background to find out what has driven him to dedicate so much of his career to advocating for African diasporas. After talking about his childhood in post-independence Nigeria and his subsequent migration to the UK, Onyekachi deconstructs the African diaspora, providing his own conceptual framework to define who they are and to explain the different ways or transfers in which they contribute to the continent. We then talk about the role of Afford UK in engaging diasporas, including some of the work they've done to leverage diaspora interest in contributing their time, skills, money and more. We close with Onyekachi's insights into the key areas of underexploited potential in African diaspora engagement, as well as his own lessons learned from many years working at the forefront of this exciting field. I really enjoyed this discussion, as Onyekachi is one of the few people I know who has the vision and wealth of life experience required to draw the linkages between diaspora engagement and broader societal themes of racial injustice and inequality. And it was also great hearing more about Afford's work, which has not only fostered the diaspora's contributions to the African continent, but has also brought the African diaspora into critical conversations in the UK on the societal issues of our time. I definitely recommend checking out Afford's website at afford-uk.org to learn more. And if you want to hear more episodes on diaspora engagement, I recommend checking out episodes 2, 4 and 9. As always, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. So Onyokachi, welcome to the show. How are you and where are you calling in from? I'm really well, as well as can be in, in lockdown. Um, I'm... Um, calling in from South London, so we're all still working from home. So it's been an interesting year. Interesting, yeah, indeed, that's one way to describe it. <laughs> and um, tell us also a little bit about your own migration and diaspora story. Well, mine's a little bit um, complicated. I guess everybody's story is complicated, but I've migrated twice to the UK. So the first time I wasn't really very much aware of what was going on. So I was born in Nigeria in the in 1960 and in Port Harcourt and we my father then worked for 
the old Eastern region, and he was posted abroad to London when I was two, in around 1962, to London to um, as a trade representative for the old Eastern region. The federal structure in Nigeria was very decentralized in those days, and the regions had you know, ran their affairs very much and even sent trade delegations abroad. So he was part of that for the Eastern region and we came to the UK with him. And then he was posted back to Nigeria in um, 66 after the first coup and the country was beginning to go through its convulsions. Interestingly enough, my mother was completing a nursing course in Scotland and she, um, they decided that she would stay behind, complete the course, and because things were a little bit strange in Nigeria after the first coup, um, and we weren't quite sure where everything was gonna go, that she should stay behind and, and, and do that. So we returned, myself and my five siblings returned to Nigeria in 66. And of course, um, my father was then posted to, the furthest eastern part of Nigeria, almost with a border with Cameroon. And we went through the next phase of the troubles in Nigeria, which ended with the East declaring secession. We went through that war, that area we were in very quickly fell to the Nigerian forces. And then we moved further and further inward. Horrendous moment, but interestingly enough, also an incredible moment where lots of people died, including my, my father in the war. And, but it was an incredible moment, again, just in terms of the kind of solidarity we all developed, looking after each other. Um, obviously, Biafra was unique in terms of development and humanitarian discourse, in terms of being the template for a lot of what then happened. Madison Saint Francais was set up and, um, you know, we had those images of distended uh, young African children and, and all of that. So we, we lived through that. And at the end of the war, my father died, my mother still in the UK. She then came back and, and got us. And uh, we've been in the UK since 1970, October 1970, when we arrived back. So that's my migration story. And that's a fascinating story and I've known you for a while, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of this whole experience that you the had backstory. growing up. Yeah, the whole <laughs> the back backstory. And, yes. um, and also, you know, you, you, I guess you were born basically as Nigeria gained their independence. So you've really witnessed the whole modern history of, of Nigeria post-independence. Yeah, I always compare um, the journey and the achievements of Nigeria with my own, because obviously... We, as Salman Rushdie might have said, I was a kind of midnight child, not quite on the on the stroke of midnight, but um, the same year as the country. So the country is as old as I am. And um, I think I'm doing a little bit better than the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Nigeria has a lot of potential. That's, that's what we can say. And and I think you're, you're, some of the work you're doing is helping to unleash that potential too. Yeah. Let's move on to that topic about unleashing well, the, the African potential and the potential of the African diaspora. I think it's fair to say that, you know, you, you've had such a distinguished career in media, 
and journalism. And I know you've, you've written a lot, especially on, on issues of uh, multiculturalism, black history, social injustice, and so on. And I wanted to ask, what made you decide to devote a large proportion of that distinguished career to diaspora engagement? I think the issues were twofold, as they struck me, really. And, and they go back to that story of how my own diasporic experience was created. As, as I said, we went through this war and it was it was really difficult. A lot of people we loved died and there wasn't an Igbo family or family from the eastern region who didn't lose somebody. So it was quite traumatic in at various moments. We came very close to being killed a number of times. But as I said, what came out of it for me was just these very intense moments of solidarity and and how we looked after each other and how we kind of saved each other. And and then when I'm in the UK, you know, there was this sense after we arrived that that agency that we had was not kind of reflected in, in stories that I, I began to see about the war and about Nigeria. And I was struck particularly once by a program that looked at five years after the war. It was one of the current affairs programs. And they went back and to the eastern part. I loved the program initially because it was the first time I'd heard Eber being spoken uh, on television. So that was, you know, quite a dramatic moment to hear my language being spoken. And then, but as the program unfolded, I, I was just astonished by the, the story was not about us and what we went through. It became about the aid workers who came in. I went through that war two and a half years and we went through everything else. And I probably saw a white person once or twice. There was one occasion I, uh, I suffered burns and I was taken to the hospital and there was somebody at the hospital there with my father. But the rest of the time, it was us looking after each other you know, 90, 99% of the time, we were the ones looking after each other and helping each other. And then to watch on this program that somehow we were kind of saved from outside was just so shocking. It was, it felt like being almost, after the first abuse, being abused again, you know, and assaulted again. And I just thought, well, somebody needs to tell the story of what we went through, um, through our voice and everything else. And it wasn't that one resented the help, because we appreciated the help. I, I remember on one occasion, you know, my mother sent us a parcel and, you know, whoever delivered that, we were very grateful for all of that. And I think it came through one of those aid routes. Um, and we received that. And it was a, such an in, amazing experience because by that stage, we were having to make our own soap. There was no perfume soap. It was sort of black tar soap with lots and lots of uh, sand in it. And it was kind of horrible when you used it. It almost tore your skin off. And then we got this parcel and there was pear soap in it with this smell of never forgotten the smell of pears soap. Um, because it was just such a contrast with what we were going through. So we, we appreciated some of the help, but it, that wasn't the story uh, the rest of the time. And I just thought at that time that it was really important to begin to tell the, the counter story, the story of African agency um, and you know what kind of happened to us. Um, and then of course, I'm now in London and we meet lots of other people and I'm conscious now, I'm not a kid as I was in 66. And you see lots of other people from 
this African diaspora from the West Indies, from lots of other places, and you begin to say, well, what's their story? How, how do they connect with me? And then you find out this story of the last 500 years of, um, of um, you know, since, you know, the Atlantic story really um, of slavery, colonialism and all the rest of it. And, um, and then you're reading to make sense of yourself in this space. So you're reading all, you know, the, the African-American, um, kind of writers and and they're explaining their struggles for civil rights and everything else so you, you eventually um you begin to want to understand yourself in terms of that bigger uh space and we were going through our problems in the uk as young people excluded from the society so um at the end of my university period i i wanted to write and to try and explain that explain myself but also to explain that broader uh, story that we were all going through. So initially, um, I wanted to do that through film and television, but in the end, it became through journalism. So I got a job as, uh, you know, in, in a newspaper, a black newspaper, where we were looking and pushing back against a lot of that discrimination. So that's where the journey really starts in terms of wanting to understand this diasporic space. So and then you, as you read it and you, you go deeper and deeper and deeper, you, you also uh, begin to appreciate the potential of that space in relation to itself. And then also in relation to the countries of heritage uh, and the, you know, to Africa to, and then the connections with um, broadly with the Americas. And um, yeah, it's been a really fascinating story. So after the, journalism, uh, the print journalism, I carried on telling those stories in um, television. So made numbers of documentaries in, that looked at experience of Black America um, across Europe uh, for the BBC. And then uh, later on um, working in America with PBS, we make a quite a big documentary at the end of the 1990s uh, about Africa called Hopes in the Horizon. Uh, and that was such an extraordinary story. We tried to tell the story of Africa in the 1990s and this emergence of civil society after the disasters of the late 70s and the collapse of Africa in the 1980s. And then this reawakening of African civil society once the, Berlin, the fall of the Berlin Wall makes that possible and the superpower rivalry stops. And, and then these really courageous, actors try and recreate a space for uh, a, you know new uh, new thinking new imagination you know um, and also for new freedoms and uh, I was so excited telling that story uh, in a documentary called Hopes on the Horizon that um, in 2000 I decided I don't want to be reporting on this anymore I want to play a role because I was really excited by what the activists were doing so you know, you then look at where where your location is and how you can contribute to that transformation in Africa that was really beginning. Um, you know, we'd seen finally the collapse of apartheid. So the Berlin Wall, then apartheid, and then there's this Africa is kind of free to now reimagine itself again. And I wanted to play a big role in that. So, Fantastic. Wow, so yeah. the, so the <laughs> So the site is the diaspora and then you say well what can we do and that's where um, I 
their spoke to Chuku Emeka Chikezi at a Ford, who was excited by what they were doing. A Ford had been around since uh, 1994. So, um, and by the time I, I joined in 2002, they've got an agenda for kind of change and about how they want to see, see things. And that through the work that they did, trying to, you know, just looking at what the diaspora has and what the resources that it has and then how it deploys that on behalf of Africa. And they came up with this schematic of the diaspora having these five to six forms of capital, you know, finan financial capital, um, intellectual capital well, skills. I wanna, I wanna come on to that in a moment. Yeah, so, and, and... <laughs> so at that point, we, we saw the path, you know, the pathway was clear. And then the question mm. was, well, how do we enhance these forms of capital? How do we structure them? How do we scale them up to then have additional impact? So that was, you know, there was a very clear agenda. There was an organization that was serious about doing that. And I was like, okay, another train set. So we'd helped, you know, two generations earlier create a space for the black newspapers and through the voice. And here was another opportunity to do that um, now with a, kind of NGO. I mean, that's a really fascinating and inspiring story on Yakachi. And I mean, it's just, it's just incredible how you've done so many different things throughout your career and life, but it also seems there are some common threads and some really powerful threads that draw it all together. You know, these themes of fighting injustice, telling the African story from the African perspective and all of that. And it's really clear to me now why you you're such a powerful advocate for the African diasporas as well you touched on some of the important aspects of diasporas and the way they contribute back to their places of origin and I wanted to take a, a little step back because you know I want to I know listeners listening to this podcast there are some who like you and I work on this topic and are quite familiar with it and there are others who are not so familiar with it so I was wondering if you could just give us a snapshot of the African diaspora and explain what kinds of ways diasporas contribute and how they can be engaged and why it's so important to engage them as well. I guess that comes back to elaborating a little bit on those those capitals that you just described. Yeah. But I, I want to go back again just to think about the African diaspora conceptually because again as I started off saying you, you arrive in London you've made your own personal diasporic kind of you have your own personal diasporic story and then you meet all these other members of the diaspora and you're trying to now work out what your connections with them are. So you know, Afford, when it began thinking about that diaspora, began to conceptualize that diaspora in, about, in three ways. So there was kind of that old diaspora of, of enslavement that is there. They played a massive role in, 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 in developments in Africa. We, at Afford, we see our, you know, the pioneer organization as Olado Queno Sons of Africa, who were there at the end of the, uh, around 1787, 18, 17, um, yeah, in, in that period where they took up the mantle of um, campaigning against, um, uh, you know, the, the slave trade at that point and the slave uh, institutions. So for us, this is kind of like the first diasporic organization. They're concerned about what's happening in Africa. They constitute themselves into a body of, of people in London and they begin this work. And 
they it's mainly ad advocacy work. Uh, Aquino is going out, he publishes his book, The Interesting Narrative, which documents his own horrific experience of being kidnapped and sold into slavery and then how he buys his freedom. And it, it, it's his testimony, along with other allies, uh, white allies like uh, Thomas Clarkson and uh, in, in the end Wilberforce and all the others that leads to the abolition of the trade in 1807. So we, we have, you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants and that old diaspora of enslavement, they've always played a very critical part in Africa's development. The idea of a united Africa comes from them because, you know, the rest of us on the continent, we were very looking at our own ethnic groups or our own countries and they are outside, they've become uh, de-ethnicized to an extent so they can see the bigger picture. So you got the people like Garvey and Dubois and others, uh, Edward Wilmot Blyden, who do this incredible thing from outside in terms of conceptualizing these ideas of a united Africa. So we, we take those, that old diaspora very seriously in terms of this story. And we continue to engage with them and look at what they've got to deploy. And then there's the diaspora, I would then say of the post-war period, people like myself and my parents who came, some to study, and then much more recently in the last 30, 40 years uh, in the UK in particular, they've, they've come because of economic collapse in Africa and then lots of other humanitarian crises. So those, those people, again, I think they're concept, uh, conceptually different to the first diaspora. The first diaspora probably no longer speak an African language. They can't identify a village they come to. So they look at the whole of Africa. The second diaspora, are very, very distinct. They have probably a village <laughs> that they come to, they speak a language, uh, they you know, have very strong ethnic identities and, and they are the ones who are doing a lot of the day-to-day -day heavy lifting. So the ones who send the remittances. So a lot of the work that Afford did was to concentrate with that second diaspora, but we didn't exclude um, the first. And then there's a third diaspora that conceptually we began to think about, which is the, you know, our children, my children, they no, long, no longer probably speak a language. Um, they tend- Your children don't when, speak Igbo? No, um, it's some words, but not, you know, not, not, not <laughs> fluently um, okay. in the way, I, even I, after 40, 50 years, you know, the fluency is gone because you, you need a, a community constantly to be practicing and sometimes mm, that true. doesn't exist. So, um, so that's, um, so they, they are there. They probably rather than see themselves as Igbo, see themselves as Nigerian or that part of their heritage as Nigerian. Uh, so they're kind of really interesting differences. They're probably not, some do, but they're not necessarily sending huge amounts because those um, amounts depend on the relationships that you had with people you left, you left back in the countries of origin. So again, we see them as very, very different. And many of them are thinking if they want to contribute, um, it's probably going to be through skills and knowledge. And then beyond that, the other diasporas that we we have identified, this, the white South African diaspora, the Indian African diaspora, um, obviously the, so the, 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 these different kind of conceptual diasporas and uh, depending on how 
they heavily they're involved or, or not involved, you can work with them in different ways. Um, but we talk about enhancing and expanding because there's no point kind of reinventing the wheel. It's best to look at what people are already doing and then look at ways that you can add to that and enable them to achieve outcomes um, that they may be seeking to do but as individuals they're not doing so if you can bring them together to do some social remittances for instance or some kind of bond or something you can have greater impact but work with the grain of what they're doing so we we looked at those different conceptual diasporas and then you talk about um as you say what what resources do they have and uh, afford identify these five and you know in, in terms of this schema where we, we talk about, you know, the forms of capital that uh, the diaspora have to deploy at home. So there's finance. And at the time we started talking about that, uh, the remittances uh, in the 1994 uh, and onwards, people just laughed because they were like, what, what is that? And, um, but, you know, by early 2000, the World Bank and uh, IMF finally did the studies and, and our estimates of how big the remittances were were you know surprised us because we had almost underestimated it by you know perhaps a factor of a hundred you know um when we during our conversations in the early days because we were basing our figures on anecdotal um evidence uh, so you have that remittance, you then have the intellectual capital, the skills and knowledge, you have the political capital, which is the advocacy and um, the ability to really work to change programs and attitudes. I mean, we saw that demonstrated earlier this year when a member of the diaspora, the parliamentarian, um, David Lamy, criticized Comic Relief for the way that you know, they did their fundraising and the relationship between white celebrities and Africans. And, you know, six months later, Comic Relief have changed their policy on that and, and they won't be sending celebrities to Africa. So we can see how David Lamy, a member of the first diaspora, uh, you know, uh, still continue to play a, an important role in how Africa, we think of Africa, how we do development in Africa. So that area of, of advocacy is really important. And then we have the cultural capital, um, you know, just the, the, uh, the diaspora is a cultural force, whether as ambassadors, um, whether as uh, people who consume cultural products from Africa, food stuff, music, films. Um, so diaspora is a kind of cultural market uh, for heritage tourism, a whole number of areas that the diaspora are active culturally. And then finally, this uh, idea of social capital where as a diaspora, we're able to have access to very grassroots and um, kind of institutions, our villages, the, the chiefs, and, and those relationships that allow us to actually understand what's happening at that level. Um, so that's social capital. And then we, always talks uh, also about a sixth form, which is just most of the time, a lot of the diaspora is just doing this in the evenings, at the weekends. So we'd, we'd like to just include the time that people put into all of this as a form of capital that people uh, kind of uh, donate and, uh, and, and can 
and contribute and they, people spend a lot of time a ford is unusual in a diaspora organization in the sense that we're able to do this full time as, as a day job but most other people are you know doing all this work in in a, in a voluntary capacity there's a lot to a lot to get through there a lot to chew on and well first of all you know thanks for the overview of the diaspora and also i like the way that you've split it into three diasporas conceptually i think that's really useful and I, i'm also or, or, or more if we include uh, the indian african diaspora yeah. which is interesting i mean our, our minister of finance has uh, in the uk has kenyan heritage and our home secretary has ugandan heritage and uh, and how she got to the uk was in the post amin period so perhaps you know sometimes the it, it could be a good thing and sometimes perhaps very complicated and complex in how, how they might re- still relate to Africa. So, so yes, it's, it's, those diasporas are, com- um, uh, are complex and we need to think about them um, and, and really uh, unpick, you know, who it is and what it is they can contribute when, when we're talking about the diaspora. Yeah, so so moving on to a bit more about the role of the Ford, you've obviously mentioned a few times some of the ways, I guess, conceptually that you folks are going with the grain of what's already being done and supporting these transfers which are already taking place. And I was wondering if you could illustrate some of those ways in which you work with diasporas through perhaps explaining some of your big flagship programs or latest exciting things that you're doing. Well, but people want to give and want to contribute and how they define giving is again you know not necessarily unique but there are differences um one of the things we we thought about was well okay people want to give can we work uh, a volunteering program that allows them to give in a structured way because what we saw were people giving in kind of peer-to-peer individualistic way and you think well okay that's really nice because the motivation is important but is it having the impact that they want to do so a doctor goes back he sees the local hospital he thinks okay um, I'm here on holiday perhaps I can go in and do a couple of um, um, you know uh, I don't know um, operations or I can support with bringing in medical supplies or something so he he or she they do what they can and then they come back there's no sustainability there's no sense of measuring the impact you know not... so you think well supposing you're able to bring 10 15 doctors together they look at a, a district um, um, and they or a region they look at the hospitals what kind of impact can they have through doing what they all want to do on an individual basis but now you raise some money you enable them to do that collectively and so we run a good diaspora volunteering program with um, through VSO, the British um, Overseas uh, Volunteering uh, Service, um, and funded by Gifford, where we, we piloted some of those ideas. At the time, VSO were finding it very hard to recruit diaspora volunteers um, because, you know, they wanted you to go to where they wanted to send you. They wanted you to go however long they wanted to send you um most of us are just not in a position we're sometimes barely hanging on to our jobs and the idea that you can just go off for a year and get sabbatical is just not on the cards and then most of us want to actually contribute to 
our countries of heritage, not necessarily where VSO wants to send us. So they weren't successful and they didn't understand how to do this. And we went in and we had conversations and eventually they were like, well, okay, if you were, if you and your other partners who are other diaspora groups were to design a Evangelion program, what would it look like? And so we, we came up with something that was much more short term, that um, enabled people to go back to their countries of heritage. But it didn't mean that it was just exclusively for those to go back to their country as heritage. What we found on each of the missions that we sent um, was that 80% um, of those going back would be from that country, but another 20% would be other Africans who had an interest in that country or were from the uh, uh, first diaspora um, who wanted, you know, for them, they wanted to make a contribution to the continent. And, and this would be a, a, a pathway for them to do that. The other really interesting thing around, you know, through that initiative, we recruited uh, ourselves about 155 people and the, the whole um, um, initiative, uh, you know, it was run in Africa and uh, India. Um, the whole initiative recruited probably about 600 uh, diaspora volunteers to, uh, to go um, to all, all the to different countries and, and to do short-term volunteering, which had, you know, it was independently evaluated and uh, showed that it had some considerable impact. So that, I mean, that's one example of thinking through how do you, you know, you look at that issue of intellectual capital, how do you harness it? How do you work with the grain of what people are trying to do? And then how do you, make the intervention to make that kind of meaningful. Um, we, in terms of, we, we're at another point now where that's going to be really important. Um, with the COVID crisis now, we know that a lot of Western countries, including the UK, are, are aggressively now recruiting healthcare workers from Africa. And one of the things we're involved in a discussion about is, well, it's all very well you taking uh, highly you know, trained people from these very poor countries, what are you going to put back um, to enable them um, to sustain very fragile health systems once <laughs> their, you know, their key, a lot of their key personnel have been kind of um, recruited to go abroad with better offers and more money and all the rest of it. And um, so one of the discussions is, is it possible for um, health workers in the, NHS to come together and look at ways that they could, you know, do um, give back in, in a structured way uh, with the NHS supporting that because it's it's obviously not a good idea when you know you spent a lot of money trying to build up health systems to then recruit people and uh, undermine your development efforts. So how do you make this work? And um, Chukwemeka uh, Chikese at the time, you know, came up with three ideas about how you do that in terms of um, the skills anyway. So there's the, the first thing that you try and retain people in the countries that, uh, and in the institutions and in country, but in the end individuals migrate. And so they will do, make decisions that individuals make about how they want 
to structure their lives and the opportunities they want to take up. Um, but once they migrated, um, there is an agenda around, can you retrieve some of, you know, we call it the three R's. Can, so the retention, keeping people at home, then can you retrieve the skills that they have? And this is where these structured programs could work. And then the third element is, um, can, is there then the scope and the possibility for return? And um, many people during that Africa rising phase went back in different sectors, banking in Nigeria, the financial, the tech sector, uh, you know, telcos, a lot of diaspora went back because they suddenly saw opportunities in Africa. So can you get them to return? And then can you deal with the issues once they returned that, um, that actually triggered some of them to start leaving? So can you deal with the retention issues? So, you know, if you think about it in that kind of um, holistic way, then the policies can work and you can start really addressing at each of those stages what, um, in terms of the policy in, input, what it is that people can do um, and different policymakers can, you know, the interventions that they can make. Um, I've, I've been really disappointed over the years, given that this volunteering thing is, is um, so Im important and can be really, that uh, a lot more of the policymakers have not taken it on board. Um, at the end of the, initiative with DFID and VSO, a new government came in and then decided, even though the initiative had been, the program had been positively evaluated, that they wanted to do something else. And so, you know, they changed track and went off in another direction. They, luckily, they they still maintained a, an agenda around diaspora and, you know, their focus became around looking at, um, business and um, enterprise support and the diaspora creating jobs. But a, a really great initiative like the volunteering, which again, as I said, in key sectors now with health and everything else is going to be badly needed. Um, you know, the policymakers seem to drop the ball on. Well, thanks for that overview of some of these interesting skills exchange programs you've been involved in. I'm also quite, I know you folks are on the cutting edge of a lot of diaspora related work, including all the economic stuff, which gets the headlines as well. You know, like I know you've been involved in preparing a bond with the Rwandan yeah. government to, yeah. to fund property yeah. development uh, in affordable housing. Yeah. Affordable housing. So, yeah. yeah. But, but what's driving all of that of the key is how do you, you know, people sometimes spend a year, you know, a lifetime investing in one property. Can you bring them together to invest in something that will have, um, you know, wider social impact? Um, yeah. They can see happen um, quite quickly. They can get a return on. So, again, it's tapping into what people are already doing, making them a, another offer. Uh, as to how they can achieve some of the things they want to achieve. Um, and, but, you know, pull what people are doing and, you know, for greater impact and then move in some of that stuff away from, you know, peer-to-peer um, -peer ad hoc initiatives to much more structured interventions um, that uh, uh, is not necessarily focused on consumption, but on investment in, in what we would say were needed and productive sectors. So yeah, so there's the bond, we've 
doing some stuff now, some very exciting stuff, which is um, working on trying to get um, African heritage um, artifacts in various and other European institutions returned to the continent. Uh, we see this as quite important, you know, in terms of development because of um, just the impact of diaspora's uh, heritage tourism market. Um, we saw last year with Ghana, Ghana did the year of return, and according to the the ministry, uh, uh, sorry, the Ghanaian government, they got over a million visitors and an additional spend in the economy of about $1.8 billion. Um, and this stuff is driven by people wanting uh, to experience their heritage. And a, a large part of that experience is seeing these objects um, that uh, we're taking, whether the Benin bronzes or the Ashanti treasures. And, and so there is a, a conversation around how do we, you know, um, enable these African countries to build uh, that kind of heritage tourism industry and to see the diaspora as a viable market to come back to experience this and, and to also have um, knowledge of the, the you know, of, of the history um, that goes beyond just uh, the period of uh, slave captivity and what happened during that period, but to look at, you know, the, their, their cult, their cultures as a, as continuing, uh, co sophisticated cultures, and um, but most of this stuff. Uh, I was in Ghana in December last year as part of the year of return. You go to the castles, you have a terrible experience reliving what happened, um, and then you come back and you want to see well what was Ghana like before, and you go into the museums and there's nothing because it's mm. all in London and Berlin and. Um, you know, Amsterdam or Paris. And um, and so just to create that framework where people can understand and, um, and, and yeah, um, they don't need to come to London to see, or the VNA to in London to see the Ashantini treasures. They can also go to Kamasi or Accra to do that. So there's a, an interesting discussion that we, We've joined with others who are trying to do that work as well. So there's a, it's multifaceted. As I said, it cuts across finance, advocacy, uh, skills, and knowledge, um, culture. I think it really does require someone like yourself with that vision and with that perspective and vast career experience to see those linkages too yeah. and that's what makes afford not only an important advocate for the african diaspora in support of the continent but also as a power to change for the better britain as well and i think it's really great that we're not just talking about the economic contributions here but also we're talking about the societal and cultural contributions too i wanted to ask a question about uh, well i'm asking this question as well because of that perspective that you have having worked on diaspora engagement for such a long time what in your view are the biggest areas of underexploited potential for african diaspora engagement you touched on the volunteering i don't know if that would be one of the answers yeah that's that's huge um yeah. uh, and i think yeah i think that's huge and, and and i'm shocked and continually disappointed by how few policymakers want to do something to support that. And again, a lot of that support would be, you know, supporting what people want to do and people will will 
contribute enormously. So it kind of matched match funds and everything else would, would, would help. I mean, I think what people are looking at for uh, subsidies to help them to do that even better. Um, and then um, um, structuring kind of financial instruments. I think there is there is a, a way, I mean, we, we now know that, that you know, that, dias that diaspora economy, certainly recently, we don't know how much it will fall. And, this year because of COVID, um, the World Bank are estimating by perhaps 14%. Um, but then in certain corridors, it's actually uh, been counter-cyclical and gone up. But overall, I think they're estimating that uh, the, the, the remittance economy will fall by about 14%. In the African context, we know that that economy within Africa and, and from outside Africa is about 86 billion, yeah? So it's a huge amount of money. And um, we just, you know, I think there are uh, things that can be done in, in making that money much more productive than it is currently. And that's why we're looking at those instruments like the bond um, that can, the, where you, you know, um, you can find a way to create a self-sustaining intervention that has social impact at, at its heart, but um, perhaps in the long term is not necessarily reliant on, on um, grant after grant, but uh, can be reliant on investment from the diaspora, who will achieve some of what they're trying to do, but you know, also perhaps get a small return, which would would be a great incentive for them. Again, I just feel that that's been underexploited. It's been very hard getting, um, you know, others to support the diaspora around this. We've we've had some support for our initiative, but it would be, um, you know, we we had hoped for more, given how innovative it could be to pilot something and, and, and just test it. And I think there's a, a reluctance, which I mean, a lot of us who are doing diaspora artist, activism are getting exhausted by, which is, you know, a tendency to want to kick things into the long grass, to want to over-research um, things, um, rather than testing things and piloting things and, and seeing whether they work in real time. Um, but, you know, you, you work with organizations, a new person comes in, they ring you up, you know, they want to understand the diaspora within that institution, you go through all of that, they get into the point where they're perhaps useful and start proposing things that could really work and extend the sector forward, they move. And then another new person comes in and wants to start researching you again. And after 10, 15 years, everybody's exhausted. We, we now just want to say, look, um, let's pilot some of these areas that we think are, um, as you say, underexploited, underexplored, and, and actually test whether this thing can work. Uh, and what we need are you know, funders and others and uh, policymakers who understand that and want to help move that forward rather than endlessly saying, oh, okay, that sounds like a great idea. Let's, let's do some more research and um, 
the last research, research that was done is still sitting on the shelf somewhere, mm. not read, not integrated into what's going on. And each new person reinvents the wheel and, and there's, yeah, it's, it just gets slightly exhausting on that. So that, in terms of underexplored, <laughs> over-research is, is, another, is another issue that I would put into that framework and um, uh, over research and uh, under um, uh, under tested mm. I would I would say so yeah so if we, if we can get back into a, a, um, a framework that allows people not to be paralyzed by not understanding what's going on but to be bold and and, and to test things much more I think it, it would be um, we, we can see what works, learn very quickly, do the research around what's worked in terms of the action um, uh, research, and then move on. We, we did a project with uh, Comic Relief and Gifted recently where we supported diaspora businesses. Just as a side note, in case people are not aware, because we, we have a lot of non-UK listeners. So, okay, the, um, yeah. it used to be the Department for International Development. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, I think most people are familiar with DFID, yeah. or which is now the FCDO, that very FCDO, yeah, punky yeah. Uh, yeah. term. Uh, but the Comic Relief as well is a very well-known charity in the yeah. UK. Um, yeah. They do a, a national kind of fundraiser every That's year. Right television um program where celebrities come on and mm. sorry anyway I, d- I didn't mean to cut yeah, you they, off they, they, they do two two which rotate so one is the one with comedians and laughter to raise money and then the others with sports people so oh yeah sports relief yeah um but yes they raise generally around well they used to around 60 million every year through the initiative and of course other people approach them for partnerships as well you know the corporates and others to do work and different approach them for a partnership around kind of diaspora intervention and we we were looking at a diaspora finance initiative and one aspect of that was to look at supporting diaspora businesses to invest now in in job creation initiatives and to and social impact initiatives. Now, up until that point, you know, there'd been some data and some research on what happens, but through doing that program and working with 20 businesses, we now actually know what happens because we supported those 20 businesses. We're able to learn as we were uh, working with them. They created the target number of jobs that we expected them to create they uh, it was an 80 20 match scheme where we gave them a 80 percent grant and they had to put in 20 percent of their own money and what actually happened was that um, they ended up putting in um, almost um, almost uh, as almost as much uh, about 80 percent of of money into their own businesses and extra funding. So we, what we had done in terms of incent, uh, incentivizing them through the grant had actually released a whole num- lot more investment from them into their own businesses. So we were able to track also the social impact that they made, the impact on communities. Um, we now have uh, research about you know, 20 actual businesses. And we did that through a, an intervention um, that 
where we were able to study in real time the you know the impact that the diaspora had and and also the challenges that they they face making those uh, investments um so the, you know that's just again to reiterate the importance it seems to me of testing things and and uh, rather than sitting back and being paralyzed by by lack of data you know the the test itself would generate the data and that's actually, an excellent point the, the, the more meaningful data because it's kind of yeah. real real data learn learn through execution as i Absolutely. as i like to say and just lastly, I mean, I'd really love to talk more about this and continue talking, but I don't want to take up too much of your precious time. From all your vast experience working to engage African diasporas, what are your biggest, I know this is a broad question, but as I said, because you have this perspective, I want to ask it to you. You know, what are your biggest insights gained or lessons learned that you think everyone working with African diasporas should understand? I think the important thing is that we, you know, afford got involved in this and myself and others, we got involved in this because we, the issue of African agency was really important to us. Um, when afford started, the people who started it, um, like me, you know, watched, uh, you know, our continent, our relatives um, being infantilized. And we, we knew that actually we, you know, we do the majority of the holding up of this stuff. I mean, uh, Nigerians last year, according to the data, uh, sent 22 billion to Nigeria. Um, the federal budget in Nigeria in the same year was about 19 billion. So we know who's doing the work and it's not overseas development aid, yeah? Um, and then to watch that we're infantilized, that, it, that is a real problem. Um, you can't, want to solve the problems in Nigeria when the people who are spending more than the federal budget are not included in the discussion. But what is it you're talking about? I don't really understand. So there's this attempt to marginalize what we do, to marginalize our agency, that I think, you know, we, you know, everybody's becoming more assertive now because of the Black Lives Matter. But I think many of us have got to the point where we, we just, don't think that that's to tolerable any longer. And we are real partners in this um, development project or we're not. Um, and so I think the conversations need to move in, in terms of how do we work with the diaspora as genuine partners, not as an afterthought, as I said, you know, if they're doing more than you are and even the federal government in Nigeria, then well, why are they an afterthought? Um, and I, to this day, I still find that really difficult to understand. And then, you know, we have lots of ways where the diaspora itself is marginalized. You know, there's the talk about technical expertise. and But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, support them to become more technical because they're, they're playing such a huge role. Don't replace them. Um, because in the end, you know, the, the model that we see that is Northern driven and in long-term may not be sustainable. We've seen this year or even yesterday, 4 billion has gone off, has gone off the development budget. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much the diaspora uh, stop spending. My suspicion is that the rates will remain 
um, high or perhaps, you know, would fall by about, you know, 14% or whatever, sorry, will not, um, will fall, but we'll see whether it's the 14%. So people, irrespective of what happens, will remain engaged. And you need to really focus on those actors that are always engaged um, and help them and support their engagement, support their projects support what they're trying to do um, because they're, they're not going to go away um, and if you you are seeking the kinds of change that we all are talking about then we need to see them as real long-term and sustainable partners rather than at the moment I think there's a tendency to see them as an afterthought so that, that's that that, yeah. that that needs to be researched and over researched so yeah I think there's a it, for me, that's a big, um, yeah, that's a big conversation. And um, and again, it's not, as I said about my story when I started, it, was, it wasn't that we, you know, we didn't appreciate the allies who, who came in to support us and support what was going on in Biafra. It was also for the allies to respect our work and, and empower that because ultimately that's, you know, it's the Africans who are going, if Africa is going to be saved, it's going to be saved by Africans. So let's start focusing on those Africans outside and inside um, who are part of that um, job of transformation and that job of recovery. And I think all of us want to work with allies and we really appreciate the help, but let's um, look at ways that um, those allies can support and uh, I think Obama used to have a, a phrase which it was unfortunate in the context of Libya, but of, of leading from behind. Yeah. Let's let's look more at how you know that leadership or, or that contribution can be made from behind rather than always in front. I think that's an excellent note to close this interview and engaging diasporas in development as true partners. I think it's a really great note to end on. Anyway, thank you very much on for your time. Really appreciate it. And well done for all the great work you folks are doing at Afford. Shout out to Stella as well. Hopefully we can get her yeah. on, on the, thank on the you. show. And, uh, thank and, you. And, 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 the, the and there've the been, you know, I think there've been so many people, again, who've been part of that work. I mean, Jabril Fowle, um, who's now, you know, a leading diaspora expert, Chukwemeka Chikezi, um, Ade Darami, so Stella Pukwawusa, as you've mentioned, and Didi Njoku, who's our current chair, um, and others who have fallen, you know, um, Abiola who, and uh, Efwa, who have since uh, passed. So there have been many people who have been part of that work and afford, and I wanted to pay tribute to them as well. Thank you very much. And we'll, we'll also include a link to your website, the afford-uk.org in the show notes. And just thank you. Thank you again. And really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck for the coming months. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to, to share some of Afford's and my diaspora, diasporic journeys. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out the podcast website, at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast. There you can subscribe to the mailing list or get in touch if you want to be on the podcast. Be sure to follow the podcast via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review if you can. Thanks again and see you next time.